All right, and as you grab a seat, I'll invite you to take a copy of the scripture and uh, turn to John chapter 12, just so you know where we are going this morning. Uh, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my task this morning for to open up the scriptures. Um, and we as a church have been working our way through John's gospel, which is a biography of Jesus uh, written by his best friend here on earth. And so my task is to... Um, open that up for us today and say, what is God saying to us today and how do we respond to what he's saying? After that, we respond to what God has spoken to us. We respond as a community in three ways this morning, um, at least three ways. We're going to respond in community. We take a few moments called connection time where we have the opportunity to encourage one another, to embrace one another, uh, to maybe meet someone new. Um, to pray with each other, and to encourage each other. As the scriptures say, let us consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. We call that connection time. That's right after this message. And then uh, we gather with the kids in in all ages, and we respond um, to what God said in worship, in praise. And uh, we'll do that by participating in communion and singing some more uh, worship songs uh, and in prayer. And so That's where we're going this morning. Um, We are in John chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading at verse 20 and read to verse 28 of John chapter 12. This is coming right after Palm Sunday, right after Jesus has um, gotten on a donkey, ridden into Jerusalem, ridden into town, as um, and people are greeting him as a conquering king, as a as a as the king of Israel. They're crying out, "Hosanna! Save us! You're the one who saves!" and And so now, John chapter 12, verse 20, this is how it continues. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast of Passover. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. It's a great request. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. This is God's word to us. This is a text all about glory. It's a passage of the scripture all about glory. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word glory. What is it? What comes to your mind when you hear the word glory? It's maybe not a word that's used in the vernacular in our everyday language too often. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word glory? Say that again. Exalt. Exalt. Lifting up. Lifting up. Okay, right? What else? What comes to your mind when you think of glory? Surrender. Surrender. Okay. 
infinite. Good word. Sorry, I didn't catch that one. Praise. Yep. It's not a trick question. What comes to your mind when you think of the word glory? Heaven. Honor? Sorry? Fullness. Good word. Wow. It's a hard word to define, glory. We're going to try to do that today. We're going to try to... But this text, um, when I was uh, kind of working out the, the, ne- the several months of, of preaching calendar here and dividing up John's gospel, and I kind of took out this section here, and I, and I called it dying to live, and um, because I thought really the, the key, just at a cursory reading, the key piece was all about this wheat in the ground and, and, and in order to, we have to hate our life and it was going to be a really uplifting message this morning. All it's about, you got to hate yourself and you know, you got to whip yourself in the back and um, all of that. But um, as I got into that, as I got into the text this week, I realized this text is actually all about glory. The, the overriding theme of this text, of this section of the scripture is Glory. That's, that's what it, this is all about. The, um, verse 19, which is right before um, what we read, verse 19, the religious leaders are saying, look, this is getting us nowhere. They're, they're responding to Jesus coming in and the crowds worshiping him and hailing him as a king. And they're saying, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world is going after him. And then the next verse um, we see the very first non-Jewish people begin to seek Jesus. They, they, these Greeks, these non-Jewish people who've come to Jerusalem for Passover, they've come and they say, we want to see Jesus. We think this guy might be for real. This, this might be the Christ. This might be the Savior of the world. And so we'd like some time with him. And we don't actually see what, we don't really know what came out of that. But um, what we do know is that Jesus then begins talking about glory. He begins... This, this jogs for him, this, this brings to his mind why he has come into the world, that he came not just for the in crowd, he didn't come just for the Jewish people, he came so that God's glory would be known across the whole earth, so that he would fulfill the prophecy in the Old Testament that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, that God's glory would be known not just in Israel, not just in Jerusalem, not just among the Jewish people, those who have the Hebrew Scriptures, but that he's come to include everyone. That the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled, that in Abraham's descendant, Jesus, all the peoples of the earth, all the nations, all the families, all the people groups of this earth would be blessed and brought in to the people of God. And so Jesus says, the hour has come. And and in John's Gospel, the hour, when Jesus talks about his hour, he's always talking about the hour of his death. He's always referring to the hour of his crucifixion. That that's his finest hour. That's his shining moment. That's why he has come for that moment, for that purpose. And he says, the hour for me to be glorified has come. He's responding to this request of non-Jewish people to spend time with him and to get to know him. And saying, now is the time for me to be glorified. Now is the time for me to be glorified. Now... Um, the, the hour, the time has come. Now, how does he feel about it? How does Jesus feel about the time, the hour approaching for him to be glorified? What does he say? Verse 27. He says, my heart is troubled. 
My heart is troubled. Doesn't that sound, seem a little strange? As a response to, hey, the time is coming for me to be glorified, and I am really upset about it. Right? Imagine someone saying, hey, we would like to take you out for dinner, and we're throwing a dinner in your honor, and we're going to just feed you with praise, and we're going to, this is all in your glory. For your glory, we're having this dinner, we're inviting everyone you know, and this is, this is all for you. Would you say, well, I'm scared to death. Some of us would be scared to death, right? It's because we're, we're like, we don't want the attention. But it's not really the reasonable response. We would say, like, the time, the hour is coming for me to be glorified, and I am scared to death. My heart is troubled. I'm full of angst. I'm full of terror. I'm scared to death about being glorified. And he says, so what what am I going to pray? Should I pray like, Father, save me from this hour? He's like, no, this is why I've come. Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. This is a text all about glory and what it means to glorify someone and what it means for Jesus to be glorified. Now, before I go any further and before we try to define glory and 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 work this out a little bit i want to point out and help us recognize that every single one of us in this room um is actually that there's a good reason for us to talk about glory because we are all seeking it we're all seeking glory we're all in fact hungry for it we're starved for glory we're we are a glory hungry people we're all seeking it we want to know that we matter all, every single one of us has this, has this ache in our heart and this, this craving in our heart that, to know that we matter to someone. We need to know that we matter to someone, that we're not insignificant. And we pursue that significance. We pursue to the, the, the significance. We prove this, um, this, this quest to prove that we're a somebody, whether it's through relationships or through success in, in business or um, we, we pursue that in a, in a hundred or a thousand different ways. But we, at the root of it, we all need to know that we matter and that we matter to someone, that we're significant to someone. We have this hunger for glory. We're all after it. Maybe you remember the, the song by, it was, it was really popular some time ago by Natalie Cole, and she was singing with her. Her father, Nat King Cole, unforgettable, right? Am I ringing some bells? That's what you are. And this is not my gift, right? But <laughs> And you know, darling, it's incredible that someone so unforgettable thinks that I'm unforgettable too. This wildly popular song that struck a chord it's incredible that someone so unforgettable thinks that i'm unforgettable too we need to know that we're somebody we're not a nobody that we're significant that we matter we have that hunger we have that crave to know that we matter and that's a hunger for glory that's kind of the the bottom line here this morning is, is uh, what I want us to help us see is that that hunger, that that crave to know that we matter, 
that someone unforgettable thinks we're unforgettable too, that that's, that's a, a hunger for glory. And that that's what this text is addressing. So I have three thoughts this morning, and they kind of lead from one another. The first thought is that God is glorious. That, that we need to see and we need to know that God is glorious. And therefore, secondly, therefore, we must give him glory. We must, we must ascribe to him glory. We must, we must agree with the fact that he is glorious in order to live in reality. And then thirdly, if we do, that we will experience glory too. I think that's the message of this text, that God is glorious. Therefore, we must glorify him. And if we do, we will experience glory too. That that quest of our heart to know that we matter to someone who's unforgettable, that that, that, that quest will actually find its culmination and its fulfillment. So that's where we're going this morning. I want to start with understanding that God is glorious. All right, verse 28. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds. God the Father responds. One of three times in John's gospel where the Father's voice booms and says, I have glorified it and I will continue to glorify it into the future. I am glorious. I am glorious. What is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? The, the word glory is a reference to physical weight. Heaviness. It's a, that's what that, so, so when you talk about the glory of a mountain or, you, or the glory of an ocean, you think about, think about the, the physical weight. Like how much does a mountain weigh, right? How much, if you took all the water in the Pacific Ocean, how much does that weigh? Like it's, it's heavy. It's It's significant. And when you think about it, when you think about you stand at the foot of a mountain or you stand at the, at the edge of the ocean and you look out and your mind begins to wander and, you're, and you begin to think about the significance and the vastness and, the, and the, the, the immensity of the ocean or of this mountain, you begin to feel really small. And you begin to feel really insignificant, right? Like, compared to that, what am I? And so glory is, re- is referring to this heaviness, this weight. But in the Bible, it's more than physical weight. It's significance. It's importance. And so I think a great word for it is matter. Because right, matter is, has a physical component to it. Everything we can touch, see, taste, smell is matter, the physical. But, it, but we also use it in the sense of that I matter and you matter and this matters. Imagine you... Um, have a decision to make and you get advice from three different people and you get three different sets of advice but you take this person's advice you have ascribed glory to that person because you have weighted their advice heavier and more significant more important than the other two people you've you've given glory to this person but you've ascribed weight you've given weight to what they have said so they're important they matter to you. Their opinion matters. Their insight matters to you. And that's a sense you're giving glory. So what is the glory of God? We, we talk about this a lot in church, but it's hard to admit. It's hard to describe and it's hard to define. But because to talk about God's glory is actually impossible. You know, words cannot convey 
God's glory. It's trying to put a Lake Ontario in a, in a little cup. It just spills over. God's glory spills over our words. Words cannot carry the weight of God's glory. But the glory of God doesn't just mean that God is holy and that God is loving and that God is kind and that God is true and that God is just and that he's strong and that he's wise. It's that in his holiness and in his love and in his strength and in his wisdom, he's, he's beyond comparison. That, that in each of those attributes together, that in his love, he is, he is incomparable. There's no love that compares to his love. That there is no strength that compares to his strength. That there is no wisdom that compares to his wisdom. That there is no holiness that compares to his holiness. There is no purity that compares to his purity. And on and on we go. That he is without comparison. That he is matchless. That he is, he is beyond comparison. In each of these individual attributes. And then consider that all together. That, that he's not only just holy and just loving and just strength strong and just wise he's all of those things together and so when we say that god is beautiful what we mean is that he is glorious in his beauty means that his beauty is so much greater than any other beauty that all other beauties are disgusting in comparison that all other beauties actually derive their beauty from him when we say that that he is glorious in his wisdom we mean that that his wisdom makes every other source of wisdom look like foolishness in comparison. That when we say that he is glorious in his grandeur, that, that all other things that would be grand are actually excrement to us in comparison. That when we, when we say that he's glorious in his goodness, that any other source of goodness is filthy in comparison to his goodness. In comparison, everything else is nothing and insignificant. So God's glory is the going public of all of his attributes so that we would see it as, as amazing, as, as beyond comparison. And so the psalm, psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God, that we are meant to look out on this world, to look out on the stars, and, and to, to say, wow, God, you're immense. You're beyond my imagination and your immensity. And, and we're, we're to look at, um, you know, the beauty of a sunset and say, well, God, you're glorious in your beauty because your beauty is, is so much greater than even this, that your beauty doesn't even compare to this. That's the glory of God, the weight of God, the immensity of God, the scale of God. So imagine... Um, imagine like a, you know, the old fashioned scales, right? The balance scales. I'm not sure if, if you're, if that's the right word. Is that the right word? You have a scale that measure things, right? You compare the weight of two different things, right? So imagine putting two dimes on one scale and putting me on the other side and my immensity. Is it, does, is it even matter that there's two dimes on the other scale? It doesn't matter. There might as well be zero dimes, or there could be three dimes. It doesn't matter. That's, that's like a, it's a small picture of, of God's glory that, that we're so insignificant to his, in comparison to his significance, that we're so small in comparison to his immensity, that we're so filthy and, and disgusting in comparison to his beauty, that, that he's beyond description. He's immense. He's, he's heavy. He's important. He's significant. 
That's what we mean when we talk about the glory of God. And that, that's who God's trying to convey in the scriptures and, and in his creation. That's what he's trying to convey to us who he is. That he's beautiful. That he's good. That he's kind. That he's strong. That's, we, he, he wants us to know his glory. That he's glorious. Therefore, secondly, if that's who God is, there is no other rational response to him but to agree that he is glorious, which means to glorify him, to glorify him, to treat as though he is glorious, because he is. To treat God as though he is the most significant being in the universe, because he is. To treat him as though he is the most important one, that his opinion does matter more than anyone else's. That his wisdom is better than anyone else's wisdom. So there's two ways in this text where we see glorifying him properly. The first is, is worship or praise. I appreciate that the word praise came up there. That, that, to, that glory and to glorify someone is certainly to praise them, to worship them. To worship, to, to glorify God includes a praising of God and addressing God and telling him about his glory. So in verse 28, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, which is, and, and the tense of that is a little bit ambiguous. Like it could mean, Father, your name is glorious. He's, he's not only saying glorify it, he's saying it is glorious at the same time. You see, a sign of health. A sign, actually, that you're living into your humanity is that you're able to praise things, to praise other people. A sign of, 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 of mental illness is an inability to praise, an inability to find things that are praiseworthy. To always, to come into any and every situation and only have complaint is a sign of ill health. And is a sign, actually, you're becoming less human. If all we do is complain, a sign of health, a sign of our humanity is that we're able to praise. And so the scriptures are clear. It is full of, of invitations and, and even exhortations of God saying, praise me, praise me. Now, um, you might say, God, why are you so obnoxious? Right? C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with his book, Mere Christianity, is like, He's comparing God to like an old woman who's really self-conscious and keeps saying, you know, tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me I'm, be-. I'm like, I told you I was, you were beautiful 10 minutes ago. And she's like, tell me again. Like that, that God can be seen, that, that God's exhortations to us to praise him can be like, can be seen as obnoxious. And saying, tell me how great I am. Tell me how great I am. Tell me again how great I am. Like, we don't want to be around people who demand that of us, right? That keep saying, hey, tell me how beautiful I am. Tell me how smart I am. Tell me how great I am again. You're like, give it a rest. You're not that great. Like, have some self-confidence, right? Why is God so insecure that he continually needs and tells us, praise me, praise me, praise me? Why is he nagging us to keep lifting him up and keep telling him that he's great? Why is he so needy? Why is he so stuck up? Here's the truth. 
God tells us to praise him, not because he needs it, but because we do. He tells us to praise him, not because he needs our praise, but because we need to praise him. That when we praise him, we actually begin to live into reality. That we actually become our most sane when we praise him because he is most praiseworthy. Because it's right, because it's in tune with reality. You see, to glorify God means that we love most what is most lovely. That we value supremely what is supremely valuable. To glorify God means that we glorify most what is most glorious. And by definition, that's God. That's who he is. He is glorious. And so it's, it's a beginning to, to, to treat rightly. Glorifying God means to begin to treat him with the significance that he's due. It means waking up to that reality of who he actually is. I was thinking, I'm trying to think of some examples. And um, so two examples about how we need to wake up to the reality of who God is. So um, when I was a kid, we really, we, me and my brother were really into collecting baseball cards and hockey cards. And we always got these um, magazines called the Beckett Guides. And the Beckett Guides were, were, would, would list all the baseball cards or all the hockey cards um, uh, you know, of past years and how much every single individual card was worth. And we would always ooh and ah over, you know, cards from like the 50s. Or, and, and, um, and the most expensive card in the, in the Beckett Guide was always the Mickey Mantle rookie card. And my dad, every time we would like point it out, my dad would be like, oh, because he had one. He had one when he was a kid. He had a Mickey Mantle rookie card, but he didn't know it would be worth tens of thousands of dollars one day. So he put it in the spokes of his bike, right? (laughs) He didn't know what he had. And so he didn't treat it as valuable. And so it's been long been discarded. Let that one simmer for a bit. I was told a story yesterday. Uh, we were at, um, at a convention and uh, sitting with a friend of mine, and he told a story of friends of his. So this is, this is third-hand, third-hand story. I, don't, I can't confirm that it's true, but it doesn't really matter for our purposes today. So uh, this guy, uh, my friend John, his friends were um, at a restaurant in Dublin, and uh, they looked across the restaurant, and they saw Bono. Okay, lead singer of U2, kind of a big deal. Bono is eating lunch with his friend. And these, these two people who, were, who, were, who had spotted Bono in the Dublin restaurant were big U2 fans, and they're kind of going, we don't, but we don't want to be that guy. We don't want to approach him. And so they just kind of were keeping an eye, and they saw Bono go to the washroom. <laughs> they didn't follow him in. They, what they did is they went to, to Bono's table, and, uh, and talked to his friend and said, hey, we, you know, we're huge U2 fans. We would just love a picture with Bono. We'd, uh, but we don't want to, you know, we don't want to, uh, you know, get in the way. We don't want to be obnoxious. So would you mind asking him if, when, when he comes back, would you mind asking him if you'd mind having a picture with us? And so they went back to their table, and Bono came back from the washroom and sits down with his friend. And, 
Um, and then they get motioned over, and they got a picture with, you know, the two of them and Bono, which is great. And um, a little while later, they go on, and, and they, uh, they finish their meal, and the waiter says, well, your, your, your lunch has been paid for. Your bill's taken care of. And they're like, whoa, Bono paid for lunch, paid for our lunch. And the waiter's like, no, Bruce Springsteen paid for your lunch. <laughs> These people could have had a picture with Bono and Bruce Springsteen. And they had to settle for just Bono. To glorify God. To glorify God means that we wake up to the value of who he is. If we were going to, and we begin to treat him like he's really worth. So we don't treat him like... The, the baseball card we put in the spokes of our bike, you know, we put it in plastic and hide it away. We don't get Bruce Springsteen to take the picture for us. We're like, get in the picture, boss, right? We begin to treat him as significant as he really is. That's what it means to begin to glorify God, to praise him, and to live in light of the reality that he is the greatest and the most gracious, and the most kind, and the most loving one that there is. And that he is wise, and he is good, he's our maker, he's our redeemer, he's our savior. And we begin to live in a way that corresponds to the reality of who he is. So worship, praising, glorifying God means that we begin to wake up to who he is, his glory, which is a discipline, actually. That's a discipline. You need that. That's why we do this every week. We, we, it's here to awaken ourselves and say, wow, God, you really are glorious. You, your grace is amazing because I messed up again this week and you welcome me back. And we remind each other, hey, guys, God's glorious. He's great. He's wise. He's good. It didn't feel like it this week, but he is. And we begin to focus on it. We discipline ourselves daily and weekly. To focus and remind ourselves of who he is. And then we begin to enjoy it. And then we begin to live in, in, rea- in correspondence to that reality. That he really is that way. And we begin to take his glory seriously. God really loves me. He, God really is committed to me. And so I don't have to be afraid. God really forgave me in Jesus. And so I can forgive others. Life, our life is messed up when we treat things that are light as weighty. And we make light of things that are weighty. Our life is messed up when we treat things that are light as weighty and things that are weighty as light. And so praise, Father, your name is glorious. Secondly, way that we glorify him is obedience. Right? Jesus says, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to bear the sins of all humanity. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Father, glorify your name. Obedience, friends, is a glory issue. It's not only a moral issue. It's not only that lying is right, or the lying isn't right, that it's wrong. It's a glory issue. And so if you're in your business, and, and, and you know if you tell the truth, you won't get the contract. But you know the Bible says don't lie. 
If you choose to lie, it's because you've given more weight to your success than to God. It's a glory issue. It's an importance. It's a significance issue. And so if you lie, it's that you treat God as light and your business success is heavy and weighty and important. So it's not just right and wrong. Our lives, our obedience is a matter of who, how we're treating as glorious, whose love matters most, whose opinion matters most, what really matters in our life. Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross. How does he bear it? How does he, how does he do it? How does he obey? We have to see this too. So important. How does he obey? Does he grin and bear it? Does he like summon up the courage? Oh, I guess so. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. I obey you as a response to your glory. Your name is glorious. And I want it to be seen as glorious. And so I'll obey you so that you're seen as weighty and significant and important. Lastly and quickly, God is glorious. Therefore, we must give him glory. And if we do, here's an incredible promise. We will experience glory too. That quest for significance, that quest that, to know that we matter to someone, will ultimately be fulfilled in us. If we give weight to him, we'll finally get the glory that we're hungry for. Jesus says, verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. This text has four hard things in it. Four really hard things. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm not going to deny it. Four hard things. Verse 24, a grain of wheat, it needs to die. That's hard. Verse 25, we need to hate our lives in this world. That's hard. Verse 26, third thing, Jesus calls us to follow him. Where is he going? He is on the road to Calvary. He is on the road to the cross. He's on the road to deny himself and his, his desires. He says, follow me on the road that leads to death. And verse 26, fourth thing, he says, serve me. Serve me. You take the role of a servant and do my bidding. That's hard. It's hard to be a disciple of Jesus, but here's the, here's the glory. The glory that he reveals is not worth compared to the difficulty of being a disciple of Jesus because not only does he reveal four hard things in this passage, he reveals four glorious things. In verse 24, yes, the green of wheat must die, but it would, if it does die, it bears much fruit. It's not for nothing that that green of wheat dies. Yes, we're called to hate our lives in this world, but if, you, but if you hate your life in this world, you will keep it to eternal life. You'll keep it to eternal life. You cannot out-sacrifice God. You cannot give more than his generosity. Yes, we're called to follow Jesus on the road to Calvary. You're called to follow him in giving up our lives, but the outcome is that you will be with him, he says, Right? So that where I am, there you also may be. He said, repeats this in chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. So that where I am, you may also be. And yes, we're called to serve him. And yet he says, the one who serves me, the father honors. The father gives glory to. And friends, that's how I want to live the few years that I have in my one and only life. 
Paul prays in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know the hope to which he's called you and the glorious inheritance that you have in Christ. The inheritance you have in Christ is glorious. There is no condemnation in Jesus. We're adopted by the Father. And so Paul can say this light, momentary affliction is not worth comparing, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. A weight of glory. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Glorifying God means to live in light of his truth in the midst of really hard things. Many of us were able to get a firsthand picture of this in the last number of months with the young man, Darren, who was part of our church, who, who, who took a cancer diagnosis and all the way to the point of death said, I have peace in the face of cancer because I know that there is glory that will be revealed in me. I know that my father loves me. He's for me. And friends, that's not moralism. That's not... I'm going to sacrifice my life so that God will love me. It's that God has loved me, and so whatever may come, I'll glorify him. I'll praise him. A Christian is, someone, is not someone who says, I'm going to sacrifice my life so that God will love me. I'm not going to die. I, I will die so that God will love me. Some of us, that's what you're hearing when you hear this grain of wheat and the call to hate your life and sacrifice and serve and say, well, if I do all those things, then God will love me. That's moralism. A Christian is someone who's seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is attracted to the cross that Jesus died for me, that that's where the God, that God loves me like this. God loves me to the cross and back. And so he loves me like this, a rebel like me, someone who's selfish, selfish like me, someone who's self-centered like me, someone who lies like me, someone who, who's rebellious like me. He loves me like that. Now I know who I am. Now I know how to live. Now I know who's most important. Now I know who's most glorious. Now I know who's most weighty. And so friends, the invitation today is to see what Jesus has done for you. And to see that that is the weightiest, that that's the most significant thing, that he's the most significant one in all the world. That the most significant thing about you is that Jesus has died for you and that he's risen again and he's called you his son. He's given you his spirit. That's the most significant thing in your life. More significant than anything else. And it frees me to know what's real. It frees me to live according to the truth. It frees me to live in reality. It frees me to worship God and say, you're worthy. And here's my life. I offer my life up to you. I pray that you would do that this morning. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are glorious. You're beautiful. Jesus, you are incredible. Facing the weight of all of our sin, you said, Father, glorify your name so that the one who serves you can be glorified too, can be honored with you. That we have a glorious inheritance. We have the inheritance, Jesus, that you deserve waiting for us. That you pour out your love on us. 
Father, reveal your glory to us this morning. And then allow us to live in light of that. Allow us to live in light of your glory, in light of your love, and to treat that as the most significant, important thing about us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.